Good morning. So good to see you all today. Um, I just wanted to get up here real quick and uh, say that we had a great time Friday night at the tractor pool and all you guys missed out on some good fellowship and some good fun. Um, I, Larry's not in here now, but I was going to get him up here to share a few words about how he grew spiritually because of the tractor pool and how much <laughs> he learned. Um, but I guess he's not going to do that. Uh, but yeah, we had a great conversation on the way home, you know, relating tractor pulling to our faith life. It's very interesting. Uh, it should have been there. Uh, but I think we have a couple slides and a video here for you to see what kind of fun we had. Uh, come next year when we, if we go back. Uh, I hope we do. That's amazing. I'm disappointed we didn't get to hear the sermon about the tractor pools. Pass that on to Nicole in case she needs sermon illustrations. Have a file. It's so good to see you guys this morning. Welcome to church. We're so happy to be here today. Um, if you are able, if you would like to stand uh, for the singing portion of the worship service, you are welcome to do so. I'm going to open us in prayer. Uh, I want to just encourage you to take a moment to slow down. We are already in the presence of God, so I would just encourage you to be mindful of that, to just bring your awareness to God's presence in our midst today. God, we're so grateful for you, for your presence, for the opportunity to gather with our brothers and sisters this morning. We ask that you would come Come, Holy Spirit, be at work in us and through us this morning as we serve and worship and learn. God, I ask that you would have your way in this place. I would encourage you to just Take a deep breath and remember that God's Spirit is all around us. He's here. He is the giver of life. That word spirit we've talked about before means breath. And sometimes taking a breath just helps us slow down. Amen. This morning as we sing, allow these words to just be meaningful to you. Think about what it means for you as you're singing them and make them your prayer this morning. Let's sing together. Mm -hmm. 
now I'm going to speed you back up. Let's celebrate this morning. We worship the God who was. We worship the God who is. We worship the God who evermore will be. Cause he opened the prison doors. He parted the raging sea. My God, he holds the victory. Yeah. There's joy in the house of the Lord. There's joy in the house of the Lord today. And we won't be quiet. We shout out your praise. There's joy in the house of the Lord. Our God is surely in this place. And we won't be quiet. We shout out your praise. Oh, oh, oh. We shout out your praise. Oh, oh, oh. We sing to the God who heals. We sing to the God who saves. We sing to the God who always makes a way. Cause he hung up on that cross and he rose up from that grave. My God still rolling stones away. There's joy in the house of the Lord. There's joy in the house of the Lord today. And we won't be quiet. Oh, we shout out your praise. There's joy in the house of the Lord. Our God is surely in this place. And we won't be quiet. Oh, we shout out your praise. Because we were the beggars. And now we're royalty. We were the prisoners. And now we're running free. We are forgiven, accepted, redeemed by His grace. Let the house of the Lord sing praise. We were the beggars, now we're royalty. We were the prisoners, now we're running free. We are forgiven, accepted, redeemed by His grace. Let the house of the Lord sing praise. Joy in the house of the Lord. There's joy in the house of the Lord today. And we won't be quiet. We shout out your praise. There's joy in the house of the Lord. Our God is surely in this place. And we won't be quiet. We shout out your praise. There's joy in the house of the Lord. There's joy in the house of the Lord today. And we won't be quiet. We shout out your praise. There's joy in the house of the Lord. Our God is surely in this place. And we won't be quiet. We shout out your praise. Oh, oh, oh. We shout out.
joy in the house of the Lord. I, you haven't noticed yet, um, Pastor Nicole's not here, and if you're listening, Nicole, we miss you. It is a blessing to have a pastor who worships, and I like to look over at her during worship because it's an encouragement to me to see her entering into worship and to know that we are worshiping together, and it's sad that she's not here, but she's worshiping with us in spirit. I'm going to read this call to worship this morning from Psalm chapter 32. It's a little longer than normal, but just enjoy this word from God's word. It said, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and in whose spirit is no deceit. Is there anyone like that here this morning? While I kept silence, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not hide my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Amen. Therefore, let all who are faithful offer prayer to you. At a time of distress, the rush of mighty waters shall not reach them. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with glad cries of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be like a horse or a mule without understanding, whose temper must be curbed with bit and bridle, else it will not stay near you. Many are the torments of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds those who trust in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Thank you, Jesus, that we can be counted among the righteous. Amen. That we can be counted as upright. So I'll say that again. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. Amen. We pour out our praise. 
your prayer. Your arms, 
your arms the riches of your love will always be enough nothing compares to your embrace light of the world Change is not thy compassion, they fail. 
This one used to be an old sermon until I started working on it for today, and it's much different. So what happened was a few Sundays ago, we were with our life group, and we were having this talk about the application of the Old Testament. You know, and, and people in life groups can tend to be honest, and there was the expression of sometimes how difficult it is and how hard it is to make sense out of it, let alone apply it. So I got to thinking about that, and that's why I chose to do this sermon rather than the other one I was thinking about. And because for us, today's readers, there are things about the Old Testament that are just obstacles. We don't understand the cultural aspects of most of the things we read. If we can't put them into the con that context, how can we transpose them and apply them to our own? Sometimes we mistakenly think that the Old Testament is the history of the Jewish people. Right? No, I thought that for years. I thought that for years. It's not. It's the story of their interpretation of God acting in their history. And this one. Now, this one's going to be too close to comfort, so don't react. We are embarrassed by many aspects of the Old Testament because we can't justify them today. Hmm. I saw a few eyes get wide. We lack historical context for the prophets. The worst, the worst place we have difficulty is we read the prophets and we have no idea what they're referring to. So we quit reading them except for some small passages that people have made famous. And finally, we think that we have to defend God in the Old Testament. God doesn't need our defense, folks. So the story that we're going to read today, and we're going to consider, I'm going to locate, we're going to read 1 Samuel 4, but we're going to cover more territory in that. You know, so one of my purposes is to try to model the application of that story to us today, to kind of model how we can use the Old Testament and how the Old Testament is relevant to us if we want to put in the work to make it so. It ain't easy, but it's rich. Some time ago when I read this story, I wondered if Steven Spielberg would be interested in making a movie about this now, some of you are grinning because you know what happens in this chapter. The rest of you are lost because you don't. You know what happens in this chapter? The Ark of the Covenant is captured by the Philistines. Remember a movie called Raiders of the Lost Ark? I think this would have been a prequel. And he might have called it something like the battle for the Ark. But probably the better one would have been before the Ark was lost. And then he may not have done anything else. But do you, any, any of you remember Wilfred Brimley? 
Big old burly actor. I think he would have been great for Eli. But what do I know? Nobody's ever asked my opinions about casting movies before. So they wouldn't this time. You see, the problem is, just so that you have context, the tribes of Israel are at a crossroads. This, this, the system that was established more than 400 years before this is coming apart. It was established, it was, the foundation was set by Moses and Joshua, and then was established by the tribal union after Joshua's death. 400 years of history is unraveling because the social and political system of the judges is no longer effective. The religious practices located in the tribal sanctuaries is corrupt. The national leadership continually turned to old established patterns when trying to solve problems in a new context. And the leadership was self-indulgent. And they left the people unprotected. And finally, there were the Philistines. They were a, per, a year by year, they were a thorn in the side of, of the tribes, <clears throat> and they had reached their height. Seems pretty hopeless. And it looks that way when we, as we will read in a minute. But all was not lost because of what happened in the chapters before. There was a woman named Hannah. And Hannah would make a series of choices that would provide God with a trusted option to provide a path through this difficulty and through this chaos. Now, her part in the story are chapters 1 and 2. Hannah was, for those of you who don't remember, Hannah was the second wife of a guy named Elkanah. And every year they would travel with his first wife, Penaniah, and her sons and daughters to worship at Shiloh. Now they lived about 12 miles away, and it was about a 16, 18-hour walk. So it wasn't far, but have you ever walked 16 or 18 hours? It seemed long enough. And we're told that Penaniah never lost an opportunity to vex Hannah about her persistent problem. And her problem was barrenness. She could not and did not produce children. Now, that may not be as big a deal today. and In fact, it isn't as big a deal today for most um, women and families. Some it is, but, but not, not in the same way. Because you see, it was not only a problem for Hannah, personally, well, maybe because it was a problem for her in her marriage, it was a problem for her in the larger society. She was not looked upon as a complete woman or a good wife. Now, Elkaniah wasn't a typical husband. Well, and we'll find he was, but not completely. Because he went to her, we were told, and said, here, here, 
Every year he gave her a double portion of the food that came from, from the, um, the sacrifice. And in our, our passage, he says to her, aren't I enough? I love you. Isn't my love for you enough? Ladies, you know he's clueless. Some of them, some men may figure that out, but basically he's clueless. One, e- one evening, after they'd finished eating, Hannah went into the tabernacle. The Ark of the Covenant was kept in Shiloh. And our passage simply says she went into the presence of the Lord. That means here we have a woman going before the ark. Now, later on, when they build a temple, they won't let women even get close to the place where the ark is kept. And they won't even let anybody but the high priest go in once a year. But here, this woman goes into the presence of the Lord. She was so distraught by her personal crisis that, and so emotional in her praying that she didn't even see Eli sitting back by the door. <clears throat> and Eli asked her, why have you come into the presence of the house, the presence of the Lord, drunk and disorderly? She answers him in clear language. Not so, Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Hannah goes home. The Lord hears her prayer. She preg- becomes pregnant. She has a son. She names him Samuel. She keeps him at home. She doesn't even go back to Shiloh to worship until he's weaned. And that's after seeing children that are primarily breastfed in, in, in communities. He's probably three or four years old, based on my Africa experience. <clears throat> when he's old enough that he can survive without her direct support. And she takes him back to the temple and makes him a lifelong Nazarite dedicated to the Lord. And the Lord, as the time goes by, chapter 3, it becomes kind of blurry. We have the story of the Lord speaking to Samuel, but we don't know how many years have passed. We don't know. It, it, it just kind of all gets... Lord, but at the end of the chapter, it says the Lord spoke through Samuel, and his words didn't fall to the ground. So, if you can, and you wish to, I'd like for you to stand as we read our text. It's a long one, so you may want to stay seated. First Samuel 4, and the word of Samuel came to all Israel. That's really a part of the last chapter. Now, in those days, the Philistines mustered for war against Israel. And Israel went out to battle against them. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Apek. 
The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle was joined, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. When the troops came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord put us to rout today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant, excuse me, the covenant to the, of the Lord here from Shiloh, so that we may come among, he may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim, the two sons of Eli, Hopni and Phinehas were there with the ark of the covenant of God. When the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. When the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? When they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, <coughs> the Philistines were afraid. For they said, the gods have come into the camp. They also said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, in order not to become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought. Israel was defeated and they fled, everyone to his home. There was a very great slaughter for they, there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hopni and Phinehas, died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh, approximately 20 miles. The same day, with his clothes torn and the earth upon his head, when he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. The man came into the city and told the news. All of the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? Then the man came quickly and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. The man said to Eli, I have just come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. He said, how did it go, my son? The messenger replied, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has been a great slaughter among the troops, your two sons also, Hopni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been captured. When he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate. And his neck was broken and died. For he was an old man and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. 
when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her labor pains were overwhelmed her as she was about to die. The woman attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have born a son. But she did not answer or give heed. She named the child Ichabod, meaning the glory has departed from Israel because of the ark of God had been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. She said, the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. These are the words of the Lord for us today. You may be seated. Now, they were defeated in the beginning of this battle. And somehow that seems to symbolize everything that's going to go wrong. 4,000 are dead. Defeat at the hands of the Philistines meant slavery. Keep that in mind. Defeat meant that they were subject to the Philistines. Their hopes for their lives are dying on the battlefield, dying before their very eyes. And it's often, isn't it? When we're in the midst of crisis, we're in, we're in the darkest hour, the first word that comes to mind, maybe even voiced, is why. Why have you let this happen, God? Why did this happen to me? Notice verse 3, if you've got your Bibles open. Hard on the heels of this question, they decide that they're going to bring the Ark of Covenant into battle. And surely God would not let anything happen to his Ark. Now, it seems that the Ark was last used by Joshua. I mean, in battle. Well, the ark was last used in battle by Joshua at Jericho. So it's been 400 years since it's been used. It's, it's, it's a faint memory. But it's legend is such that even the Philistines know about it. They get the details wrong. But it's been 400 years, okay? Give them a break. And so they, 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 they have all the, the bad things happening to the Egyptians in the wilderness. And we, you and I know it didn't. The Lord's deserted them. That's what they think. So what we need to do is make sure that God shows up. Have you ever been in a crisis and wondered where in the world God was and how you could make God show up? Yeah, I bet you have. So they fell into something bordering on idolatry. Their first response was to get an object that was a symbol of God to them. That's what an idol is. Get, get this object and bring it into the, the battle with them. Now in anthropology, I learned that this is called magic. 
We all practice it. Even Christians in our praying sometimes practice it. We all try to find ways that we can assure God will do what we want Him to do when we want Him to do it. You're either practicing idolatry or magic, depending on whether you're talking about religion or, or anthropology. And folks, it doesn't work. But as the story unfolds, they've obviously misunderstood the solution to their problem. Because they think the glory of the Lord has departed. Now, the glory of the Lord is shorthand for God's presence, for God's power. And that the glory of the Lord has departed them. And, and it was demonstrated in the fact that, that a few thousand men had been killed and they were in the midst of this battle and they needed to make sure God was there. Well, it doesn't work out that way. And as she lies dying after giving birth to her son, the wife of Phineas symbolizes it that has echoed down to this day. She names her son a Hebrew word, meaning the glory of the Lord has departed. Ichabod. Ichabod was his name. Now, let's look a minute at Hannah. And if you don't trust my summary, go back and read chapter 1 this afternoon. Hannah was at a crossroads in her life. Hannah was in the midst of a crisis that was, was questioning her very being as a woman and as a wife. It was mirrored in the crossroads of the nation. But in the national leadership, they failed to understand the nature of God and they failed to understand the reason that they thought God had departed from them. It never occurred to them that their relationship with God wasn't because of the ark or, or, sim, or even assured by the ark. That the relationship that they had with God had been established through Moses when God created a covenant between himself and the people of Israel, the Hebrews. And if you read carefully the question all through the book of Judges, <clears throat> it's never that God departs. It's that the people get content and they turn away from practicing the covenant and then God has to send somebody to rescue them. This has been the pattern for 400 years. Well, guess what? God does it again. They just don't pay any attention. They, and, and he does it because this woman, Hannah, is in the midst of a crisis down to her very, her very soul. And Hannah replies by going before the Lord and praying and then dedicating the answer to that prayer to the service of God. She trusted God to resolve the crisis she was in. 
the leaders, the national leaders, trusted magic. The glory of, of God, the power of God, isn't, it hasn't departed. Their, their ability to access it is what's gone. Their ability to access it is, is wrong because they, they hadn't practiced it. They hadn't been habitual about it. They, they only needed it when they were in battle and losing. That's when they thought about it. Look at Hannah. She went every year <coughs> to Shiloh to sacrifice. She went every year as the second wife, demeaned and demoralized because she couldn't produce children. Did it stop her from going to worship? She was there. So I'm not going to ask you how many of you felt like coming to church this morning. But the thing is, is we all have situations in which we are demoralized. And we just say, you know, why should I worship God? God's not showing up for me. Where's God at? God's where God always is. question is, where are we looking at? And the problem is, is we want our answers. Well, the ark was of such renown that I want to recall to you what the Philistines said. When the Philistines learned that the ark had come in to camp, they said, gods have come into the camp. Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men uh, in order not to become slaves to the Hebrews. Philistines believed in magic. But God's relationship with us is not based on something so flimsy. And God is not controlled by our actions. Hannah's actions didn't control what God was doing. Hannah's actions provided a way for God to do what he has always done. Show up. And to show up in a way that makes a difference in the lives of people. And God showed up because Hannah was willing to respond to God and let God be God and not a puppet. So, Hannah does something that we need to learn to do. Hannah demonstrates the power of an ordinary life. We live in a time in which it is the extraordinary that, that glitters and gets our attention. And it probably has always been this way. It just happens so frequently now, and, and, and maybe even more easily. But it, take note, Hannah was a person who experienced shame. She experienced anxiety. She had low self-esteem. 
and she had a number of negative conditions that surrounded her living. But she did not let any of them determine how she would respond to the crisis. None of those things kept her from seeking out God. None of them. It never entered her mind, not the least, that the glory of the Lord had departed Israel. That's not what the question, the, the leaders thought. When they entered a crisis, they thought, God is gone. We've got to make sure he comes back. Well, years ago, I read a story that I thought, it was about a man, a man talking about his brother who couldn't read, but he could identify numbers. And so somebody standing in, a, in his there asked him, he said, well, what does he do? What does he do when he has problems? So he said, for example, my brother, when he's traveling, he doesn't know where he's going because he can't read the signs. But he can tell you how far it is to get there. How much, it, how good is it to know how far it is to get someplace that you don't know is the right place to go? That's the way we live. Now, I'm all for getting all the help that I can get. I'm, and, and my advice to you would be, in the midst of any crisis, seek out all the help that's available to you. Be that medical, be that um, counseling, be that finance, whatever it is. Seek out the help that you can get. But don't do it at the expense of going before the presence of God. Hannah's power was that she knew that the power of an ordinary life led to great things. Because what happened? Through Hannah, Samuel was born. And by the time of this battle, we have read in the verses at the end of chapter 3 that God was speaking through Samuel. God was making his word known through Samuel. And that his, the, the word of Samuel did not fall to the ground. That mean, meant that... Is a euphemism for saying that the, that the word of Samuel was not lost for nothing. So I, today, as we begin to think about, and maybe you've been thinking about other things for a while in this sermon, but now it's time for you to start thinking about going home. I'm about done. It's going to be hot this afternoon. So... Think about staying cool. But what about the crises that you will go back to when you leave this building? Is it financial? Is it moral? Is it relational? Is it health? What is the crisis that you're going to have to deal with outside of these doors? Here's what 
I think God wants from us today. He wants us to handle our crises in ways that honor him. We, we angst a lot over how we're going to give witness to God, how we're going to get people to pay attention to the message of God. We can start by living as if God really matters. We can start by living as if we have been in God's presence. And that shame, anxiety, failure, bad reputation, anything that can be said about us, that none of those things will cause us to lose confidence in the power of God in our life. I've often wondered what influence my living through various crises has had. I will never be able to document if I've contributed to the creation of a Samuel. But does that really matter? We live by faith. And we live by faith that God will take our faithfulness and multiply it in the lives of others. Like Hannah, we live in a nation at a crossroads. And it's not likely any of us will do anything to influence those larger issues. We, our, our ability to influence them is, is limited. So my advice is, we resolve our personal crises in ways that reflect that God is. And that he matters to us. And that the way we live for him matters. That's the key to our witness. We can say all we want about church. We can say all we want about the power of the Bible. We can say all we want about the power of prayer. We can, we can use holy language till the cows come home. I guess they're not going to come home here, but some, you know what I mean. But if we don't live in the midst of crises with the confidence that God is present and powerful, we might as well shut up and not say any of the rest. So, today, after we sing this last song, there's nothing for it. You will have things to face. Face them knowing that you face them with the Lord and that there's no place you can go. There's no place that you can go without the presence of the Lord waiting for you. Without the power of God available to you. Otherwise, otherwise, they shouldn't call us Christians. They should call us Ichabod. And I don't think, I don't think that's what we want. God is present.
Let's pray. Father, we're going to sing, and we're going to reflect, and we are going to bring glory and honor to you in the midst of the service, and then we're going to have the opportunity to do it in the midst of our living. Help us to take our worship this day and to the various places we will be on Monday. In Jesus' name, amen. I will. I do. Amen. This is a perfect opportunity for us to sing that song again. Um, that we sang earlier, Great Are You, Lord, and think about now how it maybe strikes us differently in the context of the message that we just heard and thinking about God's greatness and his faithfulness even in the midst of our own crisis. You can stand if you're able while we sing.
is great and the Lord intends to do great things in your life this week it's a very simple literary device when we miss it we don't understand the story of the first four chapters of Samuel it's the contrast of two women one who, whose faithfulness provides God with a way to continue his work, so much so that it has influenced your life and mine. And another woman who, in the viewing of the events, declares Ichabod that God isn't present. May there be no Ichabods voiced in your life this week. Go in God's grace.